We are so darn lucky. Thank you. <clears throat> so the word, words, are really powerful. You know, it can take a single word, a no, or a yes, to completely change the course of your life or the course of history. We are a people that are gathered by words. And by we, I mean those of us sitting right here in this sanctuary today. And our history goes back to the beginnings in the Bible, that creation story where God uses words to create. The words themselves, the naming, the ability to name the the sky and the ground and the animals and ultimately Adam and Eve, which are not names. Adam means man, but names things into existence. And that's one of the power of words. They, they, they bring ideas to life. But we've moved on from that creation myth. And lo and behold, it was a list of words that were marked and put onto a church door in Europe that was the start of the Reformation, that the church and its paying attention to the Bible wasn't quite getting it right and had gotten complicated and caught up in its own words and creeds. And so it was a list of words that created a revolution in religious history of which we are a part. And then our sorting out our beliefs as Unitarians and as Universalists all again come from words. The sermons of Hosea Ballou and Thoreau and um, Emerson. All those words helped sort ideas leading to us. And we are gathered here, we say it every single Sunday, a whole set of words that we repeat. We repeat our covenant. That's how we agree to be together. And we repeat a litany that we're grateful and that we stand on the shoulders of others. So, so words are, well, they're our currency. They're our flow of energy and ideas. They are power. Words are power. Which is why this month we're talking about power and words. So I started thinking, originally I had named this sermon after that axiom or quote, the Margaret Mead Association isn't exactly sure if she even said this. Not in her writings, but it's such a fabulous quote, it lives on. And that is, never doubt the power of a small group of committed citizens to change the world. Indeed, That's all there is. 
So I originally was going to head in that direction and talk about all the ways we exchange power, collect power, throw off power, take on power, bring in others so that they can share our power that we use to change the world. And I thought, yeah, okay. You've heard that sermon a few times. But I I couldn't help but think about all the ways we have groups that gather by words. We have our board and committees and you expect the, the minister. I couldn't come up here. I thought about it. I couldn't come up here and go, and then say, silence is power. <laughs> Done. I'm in. But as I imagined all the ways our smaller groups in this church use power and use it well and rely on words, I thought about the converse. So let's take a, uh, an imaginary committee And this committee has 10 people, just for the heck of it. And so they gather because they've exchanged words about when they're meeting and what they're going to be doing, and they have an agenda, set of words, that's their map of what they're going to be doing. And then they take turns exchanging words. And then I got to thinking, well, wait a minute. There's one person, ideally, This is how our committees operate, talking at a time. Not always, but in general, there's always one person. So that means there are nine other people not talking. They're listening. They're silent. I've always imagined that person talking is the one with the power. But I thought, ooh, that person is overpowered by these nine others who are listening, listening carefully. They're being silent. That, That there is indeed power in silence. And that's our task today, is to think about where silence has great power. I came to this tradition, as many of you did through circuitous roots, Episcopalian, and then I went away to college. And what a gift that was, because I went not in Oklahoma, but back east. And all of my friends had gone to these Quaker, not all of them, but many of them had gone to these Quaker public schools, prep schools, and were raised in this Quaker ethos. And they went to Quaker meetings. So I started going to Quaker meetings, and there are these fabulous old wooden classical structures And what do the Quakers do but sit in silence? And it's incredibly powerful. You can speak, but you have to wait until you really have something to say. And that means there are indeed some meetings where no one speaks. And it's weird that that could be the most powerful meeting. But it can be. And and that silence also points up what makes silence so hard. And that is it leaves you vulnerable. 
We make our way in the world by talking. And that's my power. So if I keep talking, I won't let you say your ideas, and you have to hear mine. And so when you're in a Quaker meeting, they're called popcorn meetings when someone gets up and too many people get up and talk and chatter. And what you're able to see is that person either has an idea that's so passionate it has to come out, or all those other reasons we talk because we're uncomfortable. We need to be seen. Um, I don't want you to know how this uh, freaks me out, so I'm just going to keep talking, and then you'll never know what's really... So silence is incredibly vulnerable. And it's a power that we don't harness often. And I feel like as a religious institution, it is one of the few places where we can actually practice being silent and practice tools to take them home to further practice being silent. And I often wonder for better words to introduce that really short moment of silence we have during our prayer time. And I know sometimes that moment feels like an eternity, and then sometimes it's so short. But how to make us feel comfortable in the silence. And the other part of that discomfort is Who do you meet in the silence but yourself? And all those popcorn meetings that are going on in your head when you're silent. Oh, I know what to say. Wait, 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 wait. I know what's right. I'm going to say it. So I've been thinking about the three powers of silence. And I'd say one is learning. That every scientist, every student, every parent knows that it's in observing and not inserting yourself that you can see things that you can't see when you're busy saying what you think. And, and silence with yourself, being alone with yourself, can be scary at first because all those thoughts come up and you think all these things and you think you're crazy. But it's also the more you have silence with yourself, the more you get to know yourself. And the more you get to know yourself, the more effective you are and the more you know when to speak and when not to speak and to not be uncomfortable with your silence. The other second component of silence is hospitality. I am guilty of getting so excited or wanting you to know what I think that I'll just step over what you're saying. And silence, granting silence to someone else is stepping back So they have space and room to not necessarily talk, but even just to think, to process, to, yes, to have time. So silence pushes things away in a a hospitable way that we don't often grant each other. And I was trying to sort through, so is 
there a way to be silent in the internet? Is there a way to be silent in social media in the way you can be in a conversation? I took a break from Facebook while we were out of town. It was so fabulous. But the conversation keeps going. So it's not really a silence in the way that being silent with someone is a welcome mat. I don't know, and I hadn't thought about that kind of hospitality being missing online. If you have ideas about how silence can happen in these relationships that we're building digitally, then uh, I'd like to hear that. Because for now, it's my critique of what's missing from some of those relationships, that there's not space for silence. Because that stream of ideas will just keep coming. And the third is witness. That when you're silent and give someone the floor, or even if you're sitting with someone who's sick or grieving and not speaking, you're still witnessing who they are, what they're experiencing. And I don't know about you, but sometimes all I want is for someone to witness who I am, to recognize what's going on in my life at that moment, just to be seen. But of course, a witness can be bigger. Well, I, I, I brought, I've been reading... Um, because I thought about the Quaker background of mine, I looked up Parker Palmer. He teaches, um, he writes a lot about democracy. And he tells this story in a book of his called A Hidden Wholeness. And he says, a colleague attends a conference on Jungian dream analysis where people wrote questions on cards that were passed along to a panel of experts. Among them was the grandson of Carl Jung. And one of these cards told a story of a horrific recurring dream in which the dreamer was stripped of all human dignity and worth through Nazi atrocities. A member of the panel read the dream out loud. So as she listened the friend began to formulate a dream interpretation in her head in anticipation of the panel's response. It was really a no-brainer, she thought, as her mind busily offered her symbolic explanations of the torture and atrocities described in the dream. But that was not how the panel responded at all. When the reading of the dream was complete, Jung's grandson looked out over the large audience. Would you please rise, he asked. We will stand together in a moment of silence in response to this dream. The audience stood for a minute. My colleague impatiently waited for the discussion she was certain would follow. But when they sat again, the panel went on to the next question. A friend simply didn't understand this at all, and a few days later she asked one of her teachers, himself a Jungian analyst, Ah, Lois, he had said, there is in life a suffering 
so unspeakable, a vulnerability so extreme that it goes far beyond words, beyond explanations, and even beyond healing. In the face of such suffering, all we can do is bear witness. So no one needs suffer alone. So there are two subtexts to this story that might help us understand why silence with must be taught and practiced. By silence with, he talks about there are two kinds of silence. There's that silence um, at. You know, when you give someone the cold shoulder, don't talk, I'm not going to respond. That silence at. And then there's the silence with. The silence that is life-giving, not life-deadening. So silence with must be taught and practiced. First, the silence at the Jungian conference didn't arise spontaneously. It was evoked by one of the leaders. Had Jung's grandson not asked for silence, the panel might well have slipped into their analytical discussion. Second, while many people in the room must have stood, understood why silence was the only meaningful response, or else they would have pressed for an interpretation of the dream. Trapped in an analytical mindset, the woman who didn't understand that silence needed a trusted teacher to explain why. Why be silent? So I think that silence is something that we do learn from each other and practice it doesn't come naturally, and we're uncomfortable. They've done social science research about how long, you know, that seven-second pause in any party or conversation feels like an eternity and that something is terribly wrong. So our task with power is to recognize that our words indeed have power, but that our silence and our developing the capacity to be comfortable in silence and to attend a meeting and not feel like you weren't there if you hadn't spoken, to know you were a witness and that you were hospitable. It's what I think our task at hand, and I ask that you consider this week, just notice... All those times you, oops, could have been silent, but weren't. Or when you were mindful and able to grant silence to someone else. It's a gift. It's a power. May it be so.